Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How is it that we haven't done an open with low flying helicopter? Because it's here. The low flying helicopter was just here a minute ago. Low flying helicopter this week really fucked up the Lawfare podcast. Really? Yeah. So if you listen to the Lawfare podcast this week, you can. Yeah, I I'm interviewing this uh, sextortion prosecutor, and the helicopter keeps buzzing the window. They know. I, I, you, you know, know what we need. They know a drone. <laughs> I don't want to hurt anybody. <laughs> I just, just want to menace it a little bit. Close call, just and I bet it, it reduces the problem. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Brexit Turkey Benghazi edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. I think I had that for Thanksgiving last year. Yeah, that's a great Brexit Turkey Benghazi. It's Is that like a turducken? Yeah, it's the new turducken. Or like a haggis turducken, yeah, it's, maybe? It's, it's a conspiracy wrapped inside a big fat bird ever. wrapped inside a disaster. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah that excellent. sounds about right. It, that, you, it, that never cooks right, though. No. It always comes out overdone. Just cooks. Like, it cooks on the right side only. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, no, I will not be serving that at my next Thanksgiving table. But I hope that my good friends who are all here with me might be at that table. We're you like that segue? We're all here That's today. Wow. Susan Hennessy. Welcome back. Thank you. Susan, you're not drinking scotch right now, but not I didn't want you to time. feel left out last weekend when we when we said talking that, about two thirds. I was so literally sorry. sitting on the metro being like, What the hell? <laughs> it was you know, entirely my bad. No, the denominator <sighs> reflected two thirds of those present. Yes. I'm gonna do like a cardboard cutout of me and just placeholds whenever I'm gone. <laughs> Yeah. So that I never have like a again. really stern look on my face too, yeah, and exactly. a glass of scotch in your hand, and a glass of scotch, a big one, <laughs> a big glass of scotch. Uh, we needed it after this week. Jeez, uh, yeah. So this week on the podcast, how will the UK's exit from the European Union affect U.S. national security? Is a terrorist attack in Turkey the inevitable result of battlefield victories against ISIS? And we're going to take on the sound and the fury of the Benghazi report. Um, in fact, I think faced with the choice of whether we should start with uh, one of the most important sort of, you know, defining moments for world and national security policy or the Benghazi report. We should probably start with the Benghazi report. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. that feels like the important thing. Anybody have any say about the Benghazi report? Yeah, I do. Two years. <laughs> oh, you do? Oh. $7 million, <laughs> 800 pages. And that... Is what you came up with? Yeah. You know what? I'm angry. I'm angry because I overestimated Trey Young. I thought he would come up with something crazy. Smoking guns. But like, Even I thought like it would mildly, be mildly like there. guns that smelled vaguely of smoke. Well, I thought there would be something. Yeah. You know Nothing. what? I was impressed about this dimension, which is that when they released the committee report, there was also a concurring opinion by two Republicans on the committee who didn't think the report went, went far, far enough. enough. And there was a dissenting opinion from the Democrats on the committee who felt excluded from the report. So it was almost, it was 
Supreme Court-like in its majesty and multifacetedness. <laughs> Damning the Supreme Court Boy, by yes. comparison. So here's, sure, here's, Mike Pompeo and uh, Jim Jordan would really appreciate that comparison. So here's my question. It's the best Do, one they're ever going to get. <laughs> it's from you, for sure. <laughs> Is this uh, an area where, you know, we, we studied Benghazi and really all we learned was that Hillary Clinton had an email server, which has, of course, is interesting, and it's arguably a much bigger deal than Benghazi in some ways, but it has literally nothing to do with Benghazi. Or did we actually learn anything from this endeavor? Well, we certainly learned, I mean, look, we did learn the timeline of the events that went down, but we knew those already. Right. I, I mean, Trey Gowdy was actually under a lot of pressure to say, well, what's the new information? And it was, he was like, well, we found information, uh, oh, there was a White House teleconference call. Like, okay, well, that's great. I mean, I mean, that really, we're like now into that level of, you know, part sub B, you know, line three addendum kind of material here, where this is nothing fundamentally that changed the narrative at all. Right. I mean, it's actually impressive, the consistency of the findings across the various reports, starting with the State Department's Accountability Review Board and going through the previous congressional investigations, you know, that basically the findings are the same across all of those reports, even Troy Gowdy's. Yeah. So maybe that should give the American people more confidence yeah. in those findings, that, you know, fundamentally this was a highly dynamic, insecure environment, Fundamentally, the State Department was underfunded in providing for security of all of its diplomatic missions, and that impacted the Libyan missions along with everything else. You know, all those things that we knew. Right, but the irony, considering the fact that the Republicans, uh, you know, obviously convened this commission and, and certainly were responsible for the, the length of its duration, is that the one thing we may have learned over the course of the two years is the critical importance of increased funding to diplomatic security, the one thing that they refused to deliver. So it's sort of, I mean, it's a lot of bluster for then not even doing the one actionable policy outcome. I mean, it, I think it's really, it's Washington politics at its absolute worst. It it. At its worst, both in terms of its extremity, but also in terms of its actual implementation, because if you're going to do Washington politics to that degree, you ought to be able to be more effective than to have a concurring opinion by two additional Republicans on the committee who didn't feel represented by the by the majority report. I mean, you ought to be able to rally your Republican Party around your politicized investigation, and they couldn't even do that. So I, it feels as a Washington politics exercise, kind of pathetic. But I would say, on the diplomatic security point, you're absolutely right, Susan, and it sort of blows me away that this one simple thing, which in the scheme of things doesn't even cost that much, is something that they can't get done. And it's notable, too, that this week um, Robin Wright has an interview in The New Yorker with the sister of Ambassador Chris Stevens, uh, who died in the attack in Benghazi, and she makes precisely this point. She said, if you want to honor Chris's memory, please increase funding for yeah. diplomatic security. And she said his death had been politicized. As I think is I indisputable. Think is pretty hard to dispute that point. So I have a question. I was trying to think, what's the analog to this in my um, 
an unfortunately long history of watching uh, congressional and uh, scandal investigations. And the best I can come up with in terms of, you know, an investigation that started when we already knew what had happened and continued long after it didn't deliver anything beyond what we knew. And then when we didn't like the results, we had to do it again, and then we had to do it again, and then we had to do it again, is the death of Vince Foster. Oh, um, did not think that's what you were going to say. Okay. Which was just the conspiracy theory of all conspiracy theories. It, right, except, you know, I mean, at, at, at some point, Ken Starr had to say, um, I'm zero, or, or he chose to say whether, whether you know, why is, is an interesting question. But he, he, he ended up saying, let's start over, redo this whole investigation. And there's actually a section in his report about whether there was evidence that Vince Foster had or had not been wrapped in a carpet. You know, because there was this whole conspiracy yeah. theory about actually... She wrapped him in a carpet Hillary and swam Clinton, at Fort Marcy Park. And, right, yeah. ra wrapped Vince Foster's body in a carpet and, and moved him to Fort Marcy Park. Um, and after Ken found that, one of the interesting things was that the people who were committed to the conspiracy theory denounced him. And the fact that he issued this exhaustively authoritative report didn't really change the discussion at all. There are still a bunch of people who think Hillary Clinton shot Vince Foster in the in the White House, wrapped him in a carpet, and dragged him to Fort well, Marcy Park. Look, so here's my, here's my question. The fact that you have this sequence of... of um, of investigations that all basically produce the same timeline of events vis-a-vis -vis Benghazi, uh, what will that quell the Benghazi conspiracy theory? Absolutely not. Of course not. not. Absolutely not. Look, there are still people who think that the CIA killed JFK, so Wait. or that we didn't Wait. land on the moon. Did we? Oh God. <laughs> So, I mean, in that sense, no, of course, those people will never be convinced. But I think what you would hope that Americans would be persuaded by the credibility of these repeated conclusions from all these reports. But maybe the effect is simply that by repeating these bizarre claims over and over and over again, they seep their way into the public consciousness um, in a way that is inured to facts. Right. I think, I think ultimately what it is is that people don't really track the story over two years time. And so they sort of assume like, oh, where there's smoke, there's fire, right? There, well, there must be something really serious for this commission to be going on right. and on and on, right? It's sort of, it's like, it's this kind of, this vague smear. Um, you know, and look, I don't, I don't mind politics. I don't even really mind dirty politics. And Hillary Clinton can dish it out as well as she can take it, right? There's not, um, there's no sort of innocent actors in, in the politicizing game here. That said, I think what's incredibly frustrating is to have this occur against the backdrop of a Congress that just can't do anything. If you can't pass a budget, if you can't, you know, if you can't pass an NDA, I mean, if you're and not you doing... And even finish your pre-cooked, politicized Benghazi report at the time you promised to get it done, and it came out a month late. Right. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that I mean, this is the kind of stuff that I think makes people not vote, and and really it sort of alienates people from the political process because it's just, it's so transparent, it's so silly. Um, you know, so from you know my mouth to God's ears, I hope we never talk about freaking Benghazi again. Yeah. Well, Shane, can you just promise us as host of the show that we will never talk about Benghazi on the show again? Oh, boy. I don't know. 
I mean, please. what happens like when a year from now, when it found out that Vince Foster like helped originally set up the outpost in Benghazi and the blueprints of it <laughs> oh, 25 God. years ago, and she no, and we'll that, never fucking and talk that about that server. Again. Was wrapped in a carpet <laughs> and moved to Fort Marcy Park. Just keep waiting for the screen. Like jet fuel doesn't melt steel beams. Yeah. All right. Moving on. Let's talk about the really big story from the past week, uh, uh, which we talked about at the top, alluded to at the top of the show. Um, <clears throat> the UK uh, voted, I won't say decisively, but fifty-two percent, roughly, uh, more than a million spread uh, margin, uh, to leave the European Union. I think safe to say a vote that surprised. Most people. I was surprised. Not me. You weren't surprised? I predicted really? It. You did predict it. Okay. I predicted both a month before it happened when I uh, asked a person who was going to be in London for the summer to be our Brexit correspondent because the thing was going to pass. Okay. And then when she couldn't do it, the afternoon when when the price of gold was going down and stocks were going up on expectations that Brexit was uh, going to fail, I... Uh, called up Zoe Bedell and said, hey, this thing's got a pretty good chance of I hope passing. you shorted the pound. Yeah, uh, did you buy a bunch of gold? I did not, but I did... Come I, on, man. I, my my, my, my bitcoins increased in value, though. <laughs> 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 Thank God for that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, no, no, I, I actually always believed it was going to pass. Why? Because you, you just think the populist rage is, is unstoppable? Uh, um... Not unstoppable. They also, the Leave ran a better campaign. Yes. Yeah. Leave ran a much better campaign and one that seemed, again, impervious to facts, which is, mm. which said something about our political moment that I think isn't necessarily about, you know, fears of immigration or rage or whatever, but just the way that publics absorb information now. Hostility okay. to expertise. All of that may be true, but none of that is the reason that I. All right. So tell us, no, great reason, Oracle. How did you know? Because uh, the European Union sucks. And <laughs> when you would have voted to Brexit, wouldn't you? And this is really You're the first, Brexit this is the Brexit first time that people, in a long time, that people have had a chance to give an up or down vote on yeah, the EU. That's true. It was a referendum and, on the EU. And there are not a lot of countries in which if you give people a straight up or down vote on the EU, they're going to vote yes, because the thing sucks. And... That's not to say it's not better than the alternative, but this is a, a creature of, of uh, elite bureaucrats creating elite bureaucratic institutions that override countries' national will on issues that are really important to people. The expression of that is often really ugly, like, um, you know, in Britain it really seemed to be about migration and anti-immigrant sentiment. But I actually think there's there's not a lot of countries uh, where if you gave people a straight up or down vote, maybe Germany, but if you if you gave the French a straight up or down vote, pro or anti EU, they'd vote it down too. It's interesting, you know. I think that the southern neighborhood and the eastern neighborhood, as the Europeans put it. Um, if they had a straight up or down vote, they would vote in favor because they benefited tremendously from their memberships and both financially, but politically in terms of all kinds of, um, societal development. And of course, the Central and Eastern Europeans aspired to join Western Europe for years and years. They know what the alternative looked like for them and they very consciously moved in this direction. So even though they might have qualms about the way the, you know, EU policies are made, they still know they're better off in than out. 
The UK always had a degree of ambivalence about the EU. Uh, it never joined the currency union. And, and it never joined Schengen. And it never joined Schengen fully. And, you know, I think that Schengen in particular has been challenged not only by the global recession that started in 2008 and Europe's halting, bare, you know, clawing recovery from that, but then by the refugee crisis, which, you know, has unfortunately, I think, been conflated in the public debate with immigration issues. But from a European perspective, it's just been a wash of people, you know, challenging the continent's ability to absorb them socially or economically and creating a lot of anxiety. And I think the Leave campaign, even though Britain itself was not very much affected by that refugee crisis, it absorbed relatively few people, um, watching it across the channel created a lot of anxiety that the Leave campaign was Sure, able to I mean, play Nigel on. Farage, you know, probably in the low point even I think if his supporters would say the low point of the campaign, standing in front of the bus with the ad on it of, you know, all of these, you know, Syrian refugees, you know, coming across a border, you know, thousands of miles away and making it sound like they were about to, like, you know, march into Trafalgar Square. Right. Uh, and it was, it, it, it was interesting. I was talking to um, Paul Danahar, who's the uh, American uh, bureau chief for the BBC, and he took a little bit of a different slant on this, which is he said, I mean, yes, there was this this sort of anti-immigrant kind of xenophobic sort of um, baiting that was going on, but that he felt that there was something actually maybe a little broader going on here, that it wasn't so much people being anti-immigrant as being, I think more to your point, Ben, against the, you know, the, Brussels uh, asserting that they will make that policy for you. And it was this feeling of loss of control and that all of these big decisions on things like immigration uh, and on uh, the economy were having, effectively being you know, outsourced. And I'm reminded of this um, speech that Nigel Farage, who runs the UK Independence Party, uh, gave back in 2010, which you should go see it on YouTube if you haven't seen it, where he gives this just blistering tirade against Herman Van Rompuy, who was the, you know, the EU, I guess, prime minister or president or whatever of the parliament there. And just, I mean, devastates him, calls him the quiet assassin of Western democracy, says he has the, uh, the appearance of a damp rag and the appearance of a low, and the, and the, uh, charm of a low grade bank clerk. That's I mean, very just, it's awesome. <laughs> it's great. But it really is this idea where he gets, and he gets in this, it builds up this moment where he goes, who are you? I've never, I've never heard of you. I didn't vote for you. No one I know voted for you. And I think it gets to like this kind of crescendo of anxiety that's been happening of, you know, this feeling that we have actually lost the decision-making power for our own country and that, that well, our sovereignty I, is been I, I think that's a, I think that's a credible point. I think that most national governments, whether they are members of the European Union or not, have lost a degree of sovereignty in the face of economic globalization, in the face of all of the problems of the commons that are deeply affecting societies. Um, I, you know, and those are real issues, right. but, but I don't think Brussels is the primary, uh, the primary locus of blame for those problems. Those are problems that are related to broader global trends. Yeah. And if anything, the creation, the strengthening of the EU was an effort to help each of the European countries individually and collectively cope better with economic globalization. So, I mean, I understand the feeling that, that Farage is is representing, I guess, but I think people are misplacing the blame. The other thing, though, that disturbs me about all the post-Brexit referendum commentary 
is the sort of, oh, this shows that direct democracy is terrible and the crowd is an idiot and, you know, we should have mechanisms in place to override referenda. And, and I think that it's a misunderstanding of democracy and it's a misunderstanding of what the vote means and I find it really troubling. But I think, look, I, I tend to agree with, with Shane's sort of account of, you know, this, Taking back control, right? That's literally the slogan. I mean, but was it really a rational, for the people who voted leave, was it really a rational calculation of, I would rather make a bad choice for myself than to have you make a less bad choice for me. Think, it is you, more you think maybe important. Wait, right, right. I'm saying like, is that is that a ra- rational calculation? Like my democratic expression. I know this is going to hurt me. I know that the net outcome is going to be a bad one, but it's more important to me to make this choice for myself. As a parent of teenagers, that is completely rational. <laughs> <laughs> There's well, a great I mean, editorial cartoon that I saw where it's it's a, it's a it's a light, like it's like a little dinghy going up a creek that says Shit Creek, and the guys are all standing there, and they say, "Now, having voted to get rid of our paddles, we can take control of the ship." <laughs> right, but so like, look, if that's what happened, okay, I, I don't, I, then I don't think it's fair to sort of say, "Oh, you know, this is this is the the failure of direct democracy and this sort of the problem." If, however, if the alternative is that the Leave campaign ran a fact-free. Uh, messaging system, essentially, right? That essentially people um, voted based on a series of lies, um, sort of perpetuated by a group of people that never really thought the vote was going to pass, and it turns out now have literally no plan. I mean, like, that's not an exaggeration. Yeah. There's not a plan. Right, and so, and so then it was, then it's a, a, a giant group of people who've been tricked. And that, I, that I think, does show that there are perils to this sort of to direct referenda, especially on really, really critical questions. But can't it be both? Can't it be that people were responding to a real sense of loss of control and a desire for greater autonomy and greater local autonomy and that they were persuaded by bad facts? I mean, every political campaign has spin and bad facts. I don't think you can just say, oh, well, yeah, we're in the midst of one right now. But when you're in a mediated system, there's um, there's some sort of uh, safety valve for that, well, right? So people lie in a presidential Isn't there a, a, a media a in the U.K. who can fact-check people? Isn't there? But they have to give equal time to both sides. I mean, many people thought that if the you watch BBC, campaign, you know, you would think that period? these were two reasonable positions. So first of all, I, I, I think we are in an unusually bad position right now to lecture any other country about fact-free No, this is the moment we can do this because they're even fucking crazier than we are. No, no, but but, but (laughs) hang on a second. We just ran the the second... Seize the high, the low, the high, low ground. (laughs) Just just ask the question, a country that just had a campaign in which, you know, millions of voters (laughs) voted for the proposition Ted Cruz would be a good president. Donald Trump would be a good oh, come president. Come on, at least Ted Cruz Bernie got elected Sanders to the would Senate. Be a good, good beer than, I mean, these are, these are remarkable propositions that are about as factless in their basis in our defense, as leaving the EU is a good idea. In our defense, though, lots of people had to vote in multiple different occasions. One thing I cannot get over is why, I mean, and I understand how it happened in the narrative, but why a proposition of this enormity would be put to a straight up or down 50% plus one vote one time. I, I, with no, with nothing about 
turnout requirements. I mean, we would never amend the Constitution. Well, because Dan, because David Cameron did not expect it. To right. do well. Of course. I mean, they say, and somebody said that. And that's because he didn't call me. <laughs> there you go. He didn't. I mean, somebody, I think it was Philip Rennie from The Economist was talking about that to, to understand Cameron, you have to fundamentally understand that he's a gambler and he takes choices. And, you know, he, I think it's fair to say, gambled with the future of, of Great Britain on this and he lost. But I mean, that's a hell of a gamble. I mean, why you would set something up like in this way? I mean, I, I, maybe the political maybe forces. Maybe because you do believe in the wisdom him. of crowds. Oh. But then the question becomes: However, we got here, or they got here. What now? Did the Europeans well, take a hard line to prevent other people from following suit? Should should U.S. should U.S. policymakers be encouraging kind of a, a kind, gentle, understanding response? Like, well, let's talk about now? this in the context of like what that means for us, which yeah. is the important the big US, thing. Well, and, and what, what it means specifically in the security space. Yeah, because I mean, you know, we could be the Diane I mean, so, okay. so, Friday okay, so News roundup can, for all. Right. So, Carrie, yeah, who the hell listens to that? Now, Kerry was in uh, Aspen speaking at the Aspen Ideas Festival, and his sort of sunny side up take on Brexit was this is going to make NATO even more important. <laughs> Which well, you might know, actually he, he, be true. He might be right. Yeah. But if that's really, you know, if it makes NATO more important to the United States and U.S. security strategy transatlantically, then that's also a source of concern because NATO has been a rate limiting step to a certain degree for the United States. Um, in a number of instances, it's been disunified on the response to Ukraine. Um, and I think if, if the U.S. has to rely more on NATO, it's actually more of a challenge. But talk about sort of, you know, everybody sees only within their own, their own sort of, uh, world or sphere, um, Tim Edgar wrote a piece on Lawfare right after this, noting that um, uh, the Five Eyes have now lost their inside man in the European Union, right? Because Ooh, nobody else in the Five Eyes point. is part of the European Union. And so that has dramatic ramifications for intelligence sharing and all of this other stuff. So uh, I think that there's a case to be made that it um, advances the security position or uh, or harms the security position on any sort of number of metrics. Uh, my sort of more undifferentiated concern is that anything that promotes chaos at this point has to be a bad thing, right? There's there's already so much chaos that... Well, I wouldn't say chaos. I don't know that it's promoting chaos, but it is certainly uncertainty. And uncertainty is not a good thing right now. And it's never a good thing economically, but it's not a good thing, especially in Europe, especially in the current environment. I think the word is entropy, right? It's a, it, it's, it's increasing the tendency of things to proceed in, uh, unpredictable and unpredicted directions. Right. I mean, one thing that probably is unequivocally true is that this is all good news for Vladimir Putin, and anything that's good news for him is probably bad news for us. And he still has not responded to my fight challenge? Well. Was. You should go fight him in the U.K. Yeah, there any you go. Any time, any place, he doesn't have the authority to have me arrested after he takes an independent drug test. <laughs> oh, this is a new thing you've thrown on. I'm yeah, right. where did that come from? Here? I well, think in light of recent events. In light of recent the events, Rio it's only disqualifications. Yeah. And we should also say, I mean, you talk about being good for Vladimir Putin. I mean, we've talked many, many times on the podcast about Donald Trump and his rise and what that, you know, says about U.S. national security and, and, and what that might pretend for it. 
Um, you know, Donald Trump was in Scotland opening a golf course. Because of doing something irrelevant and having irrelevant things to say right. about the issues. In which he applauded the Brexit, even though it appeared from an interview with Michael Wolff and Vanity Fair two weeks earlier. He did not know what the Brexit was, putting that aside. Um, and saying he embraced this as people taking their country back. And to your point, Susan, I mean, this is, look, I mean, we've talked a lot, too, on the podcast about the ties and the closeness and the mutual affection between Putin and Trump. I mean, I think that it's not putting too fine a point on it to say that, you know, Trump, Trump represents our, well, it's our, well, it's our kind of Brexit saying? moment, right? I mean, this is a wave that's happening. I mean, maybe it's not a wave, but like there are, there are echoes. I find echoes. There are and I'm not saying they're one to one, but it's instructive. And, 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 you know, it, 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 if this is, if, if we're imagining a world in which there is a President Trump, a Commander in Chief Trump, I could see him, he's already basically said he wants to make deals on an individual basis with different countries and thinks trade deals are terrible, thinks alliances are overrated. Um, so, you know, in this sense, I mean, from a Donald Trump administration perspective, this is a very good thing for U.S. national security, I perhaps. mean, he did manage to accomplish an amazing feat this week of uh, putting forward a trade proposal that was condemned by both labor unions and the Chamber of Commerce. It's true. That was very impressive. That is a, that, that's a grand unifier yeah. right there. Yeah, that was like his abortion comments. Yeah. He's, he's full of surprises, that guy. He's just doing everything different. All right. Maybe um, we should send him to the U.K., just Things are already bad. Send him on a retreat with Nigel Farage. He and Boris Johnson both have incredible the new hair. Leader of the Conservative Party. Yes, I hear they're in the market for one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can tell you that unlike Benghazi, we probably will be talking about the Brexit vote in uh, the shows to come. Uh, it's going to be a long, well, strange by the way, trip. Did Hillary Clinton wrap the Brexit in a carpet and? Move it to Benghazi? No, it was a Union Jack. Ooh. Oh. Where was the Union Jack that day during the vote? I don't know. It was... There's a missing carpet someplace in the halls of Westminster. Ask the Queen. She knows. <gasps> Did you guys see the Queen's response, though? She met with, I, I think, the she one said, of the ministers in Ireland, and she said, well, it's been a bit of a busy week. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Can Love I tell that. you my favorite story, by the way, about her mother? It's probably apocryphal. But uh, when the Queen Mother was uh, said to uh, be waiting for her, her, her cocktail was late, I guess because the servants weren't bringing it up, and she rings the bell, and she calls down to them, and she goes, I don't know about you, Queens, but this Queen needs her gin and tonic. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's true. Oh, we God can all bless hope that it's woman. true. God save the queen. Um, okay, let's move on to the uh, terrorist attack at the Istanbul airport uh, yesterday, Tuesday. Um, as we're recording this on Wednesday, we still don't have a claim of responsibility from any group, uh, but a number of intelligence officials have been saying that this tends to look more like an ISIS attack than something by uh, um, separatist or rebels in Turkey. Um, it was against a civilian target. Um, it sort of followed the, the, the MO of the Brussels airport bombing, where there were three attackers working in coordinated fashion. Um, last I saw, the death counts around 30 or so, so it's a pretty significant attack. I think I saw 41. 41, okay. Uh, sorry, 30, I was going to say 39. Yes, thank you. Um, my question for this is, that I want to kind of pose to the group, is, is, is an attack like this, let's just say, for the sake of argument, that it, it was ISIS. Uh, are attacks like this the inevitable result of success on the battlefield by the U.S., which is to say that ISIS is losing territory. It does feel on the ropes. Um, are we going to see more of these kinds of attacks abroad, targeting civilians, um, when ISIS perceives that it is losing ground in the caliphate and has to strike out somehow and continue to sort of 
maintain its reputation and its allure to people? So I think that's it's a good question to pose, Shane, because, of course, this has been a hypothesis for a while that territorial integrity, so to speak, is uh, part of ISIS's appeal to especially to foreign fighters that they're trying to recruit and bring into the battlefield in Syria and Iraq. And so as they lose territory, it, that endangers their recruiting and they have to find other ways of presenting a, a compelling argument for success. So it seems to fit. But the premise, which is that territory is important for ISIS ideologically or as a recruiting tool, I don't know that we have a clear evidence for the validity of that premise, number one. Number two is, given the dramatic success, I'm sorry to say, of their recent attacks in Paris and Brussels and now in Istanbul, why wouldn't they keep doing this? Yeah. It's a big hit. It's a big hit. Regardless of what else is going on. So unfortunately, I think we're likely to see more of this either way. And what troubles me about the Istanbul case is that, you know, it's always a case that that we have this homeland security response of trying to figure out what made a given attack uh, able to succeed and then close that door after the horses run out. With Brussels, it was perimeter security. Oh, European airports don't check people before they go in. And so now Brussels has this massive standoff perimeter security before you can get into the building. Well, the Ataturk airport in Istanbul has always had perimeter security. And these guys blew themselves up at perimeter security mm -hmm. and killed 41 people. Yeah. So it, it's just further evidence of how far behind the curve governments are in figuring out effective ways of foiling these kinds of plots. But there's no, there's actually a couple things. Number one is there's no way to foil this kind of plot. You may be able to foil it at an airport, but there's some place in any large city, and Istanbul is one of the largest cities in the world, there's some place where you can blow yourself up and kill a lot of people. Um, it may not be at an airport. It may be on a bus. It may be, but there's, you can't, you can't prevent you congregations. Can't every target, you of can't, course. you can't prevent congregations of people in the kind of volume that will allow this sort of attack. But I want to come back to what you said at the beginning, which is that there's not a lot of hard evidence that ISIS really cares about uh, uh, about uh, holding territory. Um, my impression was that their holding territory was essential to their claim to the caliphate. Uh, do you do you doubt that? I mean, that's sort of the Will McCants thesis that there's a indelible connection between territory and their their claim to legitimacy that makes them different from Al Qaeda and other uh, other. Sunni radical terrorist groups. I, I agree that that hypothesis has been out there, and a lot of people have found it compelling. Um, and there's, but I would also say, and I think Will has also said that this is an organization that is ideologically flexible. They're dynamic. Their ideology has been dynamic. Their recruiting approaches have been dynamic, and their tactics have been dynamic. Whenever they lose territory, they melt away. And when they have an opportunity, they regroup. And so I, I just, I don't know that we should assume, yes, you know, you need to have territory to declare a caliphate. It, it seems like that would make sense. Um, but I don't think we should assume that eliminating their hold over territory, um, ex 
existentially threatens them as a as an organization because I think we've seen that they have an impressive ability to adapt. Well, so Phil Walter actually wrote an article probably a month ago on more or less this topic on lawfare. Hopefully I'm sort of accurately um, representing it. But, I mean, essentially his point was that there are sort of, there are multiple ISIS, ICs, the plural, right? There's there's the center of gravity that's that's the geographic core, and, and there are reasons to, to work to defeat that. But it's important to understand there's also something else. There's a, there's a global ideology, and that... Um, uh, reducing one is going to have an implication for the other. It doesn't mean it's necessarily a bad thing. There are positive gains, um, you know, to, to, to sort of addressing the, the geographic problem. Um, that said, in doing so, there has to be one, a recognition that potentially that we will see more sort of, um, activity in, in the ideological space potentially in, in Europe and elsewhere. Um, and, and also, and more importantly, that there needs to be uh, a, a plan for this. There has to be sort of a, an awareness and, and, and some movement to kind of address the increased activity on, on some other axis. Yeah, I think there's also, um, there's some interesting potential implications of this attack being on Turkish territory and affecting mainly Turkish Citizens, although there were a sprinkling of other nationalities among the dead and injured, um, but the majority appear to have been Turks. And, um, and that relates to ISIS's foothold in Syria and Turkey's role in the Syrian civil war. And, you know, we know that in the early years of, of the civil war, Turkey seems to have been lax, I guess, in um, allowing ISIS recruits and ISIS organizers to go back and forth across Turkish territory. But in the past year, I think this is the third significant attack the fifth. or fifth then attributed to ISIS in Turkey. Um, and there are also terrorist attacks in Turkey uh, attributed to the PKK or, or uh, other Kurdish movements. But the ISIS problem for Turkey has grown more and more severe. And Turkey, you know, has as yet held back in certain ways from its direct involvement in the Syrian conflict because it doesn't want to support Kurdish uh, operations on the other side of the Turkey-Syria border. But this might be something that drives Turkey to do more to support Sunni Arabs inside Syria who are trying to fight ISIS. Right. And this is exactly the force that the U.S. is trying to build up right now so that Sunni Arabs can hold territory liberated by Kurds from ISIS in northern Syria. So I, I wonder, I mean, I wonder whether this attack is enough to push the Turks over the edge into playing that role. But how do you think that plays in with sort of the uh, the apology to Putin earlier this week, I guess on Monday, um, that Erdogan sent a letter to Putin apologizing for um, shooting down the pilot and, and that there was going to be sort of a more cooperative relationship? Do you think that this cancels that out? Is it sort of where, how do those interests align, especially whenever they would be in conflict in Syria. No, you're right. It's an excellent question to which I don't know an answer. I mean, I obviously the Russians right now are are attacking and helping the Syrians attack precisely those same Syrian uh, Arab rebel forces. Um, but uh, 
it may be that for the Turks, the decision to apologize to the Russians had more to do with economic interests and doesn't have any direct implication for strategy in Syria. We'll have to see. All right, and we shall. Uh, let's move on to object lessons. Uh, ben, you want to kick us off? So I have an object lesson uh, that is another sextortion study. Ben, Only you are another too prolific. One? No, this one's not by me. <gasps> There's two of you. Uh, no, these are actually from... Uh, Someone from, else discovered sextortion. Well, it seems to have uh, not been done uh, in response to uh, the Brookings work, um, but um, is was done by the Crimes Against Children Research Center at the University of New Hampshire and Thorne, which is a very good little group that does, uh, 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 you know, child predation online issues. So um, you and the University of New Hampshire are the Crick and Watson of sextortion. Well, so they did a very interesting thing, which is that they didn't study the cases. They surveyed victims, and they actually got a remarkable number of, of sextortion victims, 1,631, to answer their survey uh, by, get this, advertising on Facebook. Wow. And they, <laughs> they got... Um, they put a Facebook ad, said basically, click here if you've been sextorted. Um, and, gotta uh, take it to where it happens, right? Right, yeah. got 1,631 yeah. sextortion victims to fill out a survey. I have not. How likely are you to click on a Facebook ad from someone you don't know? Um, <laughs> so don't make fun of them. They, they, they're, um, they're, it's, it's good work. And presumably and, they were vetted and all this. Well, I, I think they, they they clearly uh, gained people's trust, but they. Um, well, like, they I actually do think it's an interesting point, though, that it's you know value all sorts of valuable stuff happens through these types of interactions and. Right. Um, so here is I, there's a lot of interesting data in here. Here is to me the single most interesting finding, at least that's in the summary, which is in a section on the impacts on victims. Fully 12% of victims reported having to move as a result wow. of the, wow. uh, of what had happened to them. Um, and, um, uh, so I, I think that's just a, a, a really sort of powerful single number that reflects the severity of some of these. Uh, so if you do the math, 12, that's, that's more than 160, it's close to 200 people. Uh, that filled out this survey who had to move as a result of the the, the activity in question. That uh, is shocking. Yeah. I mean, it's it's good to see that a body of work is yeah. Yeah, building. It's building a body of work. It's Susan. Speaking of a body of work, CIA bodies, my object lesson is this awesome FOIA. I don't, I think Muckrake or Muckrock uh, uh, pried this loose. Um, it's a series of CIA complaints about Sodexo um, and the, ca- the quality of the cafeteria. At CIA headquarters? Uh, yes. Sodexo, uh, which, as my son pointed out to me yesterday, runs every cafeteria in the world. Yes. <laughs> and it's French, by the way. They're mm. French? How's that for I think it provides issue. a lot of, uh, like, Food stuffs to right. You wouldn't call it. You couldn't call it food under the law, but like 
Well, edible. Like when you go to a restaurant and you have like the crunchy fries with your hamburger, chances are they were made by Sodexo or Cisco. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, so many restaurants like buy their food in bulk from people. It's terrible. Well, at Langley, they're charging 50 cents for a piece of bacon. And there's a very highway robbery. Somebody else is very angry because the sour cream is now out of reach behind the sneeze guard. There used to be real guacamole. Now there's not real guacamole. What is the which? substitute for guacamole? I don't know. Fake guacamole. What, <laughs> yeah. was, what was the text of the FOIA request that produced? I don't know. Insights? That's a good piece of information. Anyway, my immediate response to this was, "What a bunch of ingrates!" Because anyone who has taken the tour of the cafeterias of the intelligence community knows that the CIA has hands down the best cafeteria, followed closely by Liberty Crossing, and then a hundred places down the list, Fort Meade. Fort Meade Do had the worst any bitterness cafeteria. It, it became a congressional issue. Really? Like, it is, if I have to ever eat NSA chili again, and that's what they called it, NSA chili, I just, I Did they call it chow, too, to, like, add the military There was just something very, yes, it was, there was an unpatriotic element to the whole exercise. (laughs) Anyway, I just thought this, the cafeteria wars are are a genuine bone of contention among the IC, and so to see it spelled out in in black and white, that not only do they have it substantially better than anybody else, but they're, but they're whining about it. Complaining about it. I should do an investigation of this, which would be guaranteed just, to like, like make one set of agencies thing. absolutely love me, and another will just turn against me entirely. Yeah. So, am I right that this FOIA was the result of somebody suggesting that if you wanted to see how seriously an agency took FOIA, you would FOIA the cafeteria complaints? I believe this is that might be it. The, yeah. the genesis of this little it's project, and I have to say, it's a brilliant. It concept. actually is a pretty good idea. <laughs> Um, my object, actually, it's, 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 it's an article, but it's, uh, from The Onion. And I usually, I've never shared an article from The Onion, but this one just absolutely delighted me. Um, headline, Hillary Clinton bowls over catcher to score winning run in campaign softball, steps, <laughs> softball game. What's also really delightful about this article is that it quotes real people. I mean, it actually, like, used, like, Jim Messina is playing shortstop, and it's, it's kind of fun. Um, but it's about how Hillary Clinton, um, um, rolled over the catcher and just like absolutely body slammed him to score the winning run. Because uh, she can bring it home. Yeah. yeah after the staff, after the staff had told her, don't run from third. And, it's, it's, and it just goes on to be her. She just can say, make the tough call. Yeah. She can bring it home. She can score the run. She's a winner. And she's like, abs- and she's absolutely like <laughs> violent in the article. And an she's an advisor to the Hillary campaign. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's great because it sort of captures, like, I mean, it takes this exaggerated view of her, you know, and she's, like, knocking over the, you know, the, the Gatorade, and she's throwing her bat on the ground when she strikes half of my favorite one. She will fight for everything. It's so just about they said. Um, quoting Jim Margolis, media advisor, quote, When I was playing second base, she tried to break up a double play by sliding into me with her spikes up. She brushed herself off like nothing had happened, and when I showed her the cut on my leg, she told me to rub some dirt on it and quit acting like a little pussy. <laughs> Not that we condone that kind of language here on the (laughs) Rational Security Podcast. Oh, God. Yes. 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 Yeah, it's going to be just like this for four years. I can't wait. Nice one, Shane. Yeah, anyway, I was absolutely delighted and sent that around to a lot of friends. We're going to have so much winning. We have so much winning, seriously. I can't. Look, I can much... (laughs) <laughs> I can much more easily imagine Hillary Clinton playing softball than Donald Trump. Seriously. Really? And she, least, would, she, she would cleat the shit out of him, too. At least she didn't roll Margolis in a 
in a carpet, <laughs> drag him to Fort Marcy Park, and leave him in Benghazi. Bury him under a server. Yeah. Oh, boy. With that, we have, I think we've mercifully come home with the podcast. Full circle. Rational Security is a production, of course, of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to our past shows on SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Uh, and thanks again for downloading the podcast and leaving comments and reviews. As we said last week, there are still... Some hundreds of you who have yet to leave a review, but many, many, many's of you have been doing it. We yeah, really and, and it. to those of you who have not done so yet, Hillary Clinton is going to wrap you in a carpet. That's right. Drag you to, to Benghazi. To a softball field yeah. in Libya and drown leave you. Leave us a rating, guys. Do it, do it. <laughs> <laughs> the podcast is produced and edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Hillary Clinton and the Brexit Burrito. Oh, <laughs> the man. The Burrito? Oh, rolled up. <laughs> That's great. You like that? That's good. I had to think about that That's, one a little bit. Once again, scratch. the best jokes are the ones you have to explain. Think about yeah. roll over it's a you. thinker. That's like a catcher up. at home plate. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Uh, no, of course, our music is performed, as always, by Sophia Yan, um, who I don't know whether she likes burritos. I don't know whether she... She does like burritos. Just Leave burritos. or remain, Don't know whether Sophia. she likes softball. I also, I cannot account, though, for where she was on the night of Vince Foster's death. Was she born yet? I think she might have been in elementary school. Very vicious elementary school. Uh, Thank you, Sophia, for for choosing the path of righteousness and recording our music. Um, On behalf of my friends, to say on behalf of my friend Sophia Yan. (laughs) (laughs) On behalf of Sophia Yan. We (laughs) are with us to our comment with us. And Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.